questions that don't have clear answers, issues that can't be resolved through logical analysis, and moments in our lives that can't be engaged with and understood on one's own. Welcome to Ajar, an experiment in collaborative meaning-making with author and professor Joan Ball, strategist Rebecca Taylor, and artist and educator A.M. Bott. This monthly podcast follows weekly Substack articles, one from each member of Ajar, on a topic that is at once timeless and, given where we are in the world, of immediate concern. This month's topic is Thresholds and Portals. Let's talk about portals and thresholds. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, given that we're at a certain threshold and just, just, you know, recording this for first podcast. It's interesting. It's right. Uh, we've said a couple of times here, you know, kind of rigorous and committed and serious about what we do. And yet, um, you know, being at the threshold of a thing, um, it's like, I don't know, how do we do this right? And that, well, then you realize that doesn't really matter. So then it becomes just, how do you do it? Just inherently ambiguous. Uh, so Joan, I know this is, uh, kind of a central part of your work and the book you have coming out very soon, April of 2022, three short months from, from when, when we release this podcast. Hype man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, you know. Hashtag stop asking explore. <laughs> stop asking explore. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> you keep listening. There'll be, there'll be discount codes on here. You know, we're going to do the whole thing. Oh, good Lord. We're, we're going to get that There's book. There's the bait and switch for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get that book on the bestseller list. <laughs> So no, so this is, I mean, this is, this is a big part of your kind of uh, commitment in the world. So, so. Uh, and it is, I yeah. mean, all kidding aside, it's a big commitment for me. And uh, it, it, it's in the blog that I wrote for the Substack. I think that that comes across because I talk a little bit about thresholds and portals in a particular way, because I think that we often think about thresholds and portals as either being on the one side or on the other, right? So if you take a Wizard of Oz <laughs> metaphor for it, right? We think about Kansas or we think about Oz. We don't think a lot about what took place in the tornado. And I think that thresholds and portals are often what's happening in the tornado. Or we think about England and we think about Narnia. We don't think a lot about what's happening in the wardrobe. And I'm very interested in what's happening in the wardrobe. <laughs> But there's something, there's something in that to me yeah, that I think we take it for granted. I think we just take that part for granted. The notion is that all you have to do is come up to the, the threshold. The portal will suck you in and take you into the other world. And there is something happening between those two things that I believe we underestimate. And it's become my life's work, I think. It's not even overstating to get a better understanding of what's happening in the cyclone, and then that question of, and what resources do we need to be able to at, at least endure and if not flourish in the cyclone? I can't tell you how much I love that as a, as a, as a reference point. I can't, what happens in the cyclone? It's just so simple and visceral. And Rebecca, I know in your uh, uh, Substack post, you, you kind of pointed to you know, both the kind of, on one level, arbitrary, like the calendar's changing, right? It's a new year, but then also this, this uh, you know, while the pandemic isn't going to magically disappear January 1st, we are sort of near the tail end of that, right? And uh, kind of what happens, uh, um, you know, post that kind of collective global event. 
Yeah, I, I took as the point of departure uh, a quote that I found really impactful from an article Arundhati Roy wrote in the Financial Times uh, recently called The Pandemic is a Portal. And I loved this quote where she talked about how this portal the, or this pandemic can be a portal and we have to choose how we go through it. And we can sort of go through it with the carcasses on our back of all of the dramas that we've suffered or we can go through it more lightly and look towards it with new opportunity, with new eyes, and try and reimagine the world. And so I really kind of picked apart that quote in terms of thinking about what does it mean to kind of go lightly into this next phase of our lives? You know, uh, Joan and I have talked many times about this St. Francis quote of, um, you know, wearing life loosely and what that can mean. And so exploring that idea as we think about going into the new year, not just in terms of ourselves and, you know, on an individual level, how can I level, how can I be Rebecca 2.0 in 2022, but how can we not only look to make new skills, but look to have a greater impact on the world, look to change the world around us. I think 2020, um, and actually even several of the years leading up to it were real bubble bursters for many people. We really sort of looked at the world and went, fuck, this isn't, this isn't the world I want to live in, whether it was about politics or socioeconomics or, you know, any variety of things, personal levels, people lost their jobs, you know, people lost lives and loved ones. We lost freedoms in the service of, of protecting our, our fellow man. We saw other people unwilling to take those, those activities. And it really challenged how we think about everything. And so I want to see us look at this new year not as just an opportunity to harness new skills or give up cookies, but as a chance to really think about how we can look at the world differently. And I've heard you say so many times, A.M., that we get overwhelmed with these big problems and that's why we don't know where to start. Like if you think about how do you solve world hunger, how can we do that, right? But if we all just focused in a little more on the impact we could have in our local communities. And so how do we walk through this portal into the new year really lightly, both having learned so much from this pandemic and this all the problems that came along with it, but also being incredibly open and active into how we can go forward. And then my favorite part of the quote is the last line and ready to fight for it. Because I think we're in the fight of our lives right now for the world we want to have. I mean, globally, ecologically, economically, everything is crumbling. And so we can either be really pessimistic about that or we can be ready to fight for it. And in my mind, this podcast, this Ajar is our version of, of fighting for it in terms of gathering together and thinking with people we respect out loud about what else we can be doing practically. You know, I was with a, a, a bunch of kids uh, yesterday at, at uh, our new facility, and, and one of the things I was talking to them about um, in the more kind of open part of the conversation is this, we just don't know how to let things die, you know? And so um, uh, all these things that are broken, we, we, we have this sense that we have to fix them or that we have to, you know, keep kind of patching something onto them. And, and some things just need to just die. Everything dies. Everything good and natural dies. Unnatural, monstrous things stay alive forever. You know, zombies and monsters stay alive forever. 
but natural things die and 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 have a uh, process of disintermediation so that something new can be born and the struggle you know when you when i hear you say kind of fight for it's the fight for the new life right it's not a fight for, for me it's not a fight against the old dying thing I think there's a lot to be celebrated, actually, in a lot of the things that that, that that are outdated, right? The industrial system, the uh, consumer capitalist system, you know, for all its problems, there's a lot of things that delivered to us. It's just done, though. It's done. You know, the old educational system, there's a lot of things that delivered to us, but it's done. It needs to allow to, you know, uh, uh, have a natural death in the process of new things that are fighting to be born, you know? And that's what we're talking to the kids about is, is you know, you likely hear every day and maybe you experience every day all this wrong in the world. And I said, let it go. Focus on what's the thing you're going to give birth to in the next 10, 20, 50 years. And oh, by the way, you're at a point in, you know, in, in the world, you're at a threshold point collectively for humanity, where in the palm of your hand, literally, you have the tools to uh, create something that's fundamentally new and transformative. You know, I guess I want to take up a little more oxygen, but it's a great story. My daughter... Like, I'm a big film guy, right? You guys know. I'm a huge Scorsese fan. And Goodfellas, like, you know, I must have seen Goodfellas a hundred times. So Sarah, my daughter, has seen it. And a few weeks ago, I was planning on watching it. And I said, hey, I'm going to watch Goodfellas. You want to? And she said, no. I said, I, I know it's not really kind of your thing, but it's fun. It's a good movie. It's a great film. This and that. And she, she stops me. She goes, you know, no, I know it's a good film. It's just, it, it's just not my kind of story. I said, well, okay, you realize, though, like, Scorsese's pointing out how bad these people are. It's not glorifying these people. And she looks at me and she says, no, I understand that. I don't want to see stories about uh, uh, bad people getting punished for being bad. I want to just forget them. I was like, ah, oh, oh, that's damn. cool. Oh, so good. It was so good. <laughs> Made it tougher to watch. I still watched it. <laughs> Made it tougher to watch. Because she's right. You know, like we watch Succession now and, you know, there's a kind of room I participate in and these are horrible people. And at a certain level, it's like there's a certain visceral kind of like, yeah, you know, they deserve to be punished. But even better than they deserve to be punished, they deserve to be forgotten. I love that conversation between you and your daughter. And it really, and this idea of fighting, right? Fighting, dying, all of these different pieces are coming together in my mind in an interesting way because uh, you think about, you know, overgrowth, like, like, and this idea of you can spend all of your time trying to cut back the overgrowth or you can find a place to plant a garden <laughs> that it doesn't have the overgrowth. That's, that's the image that's been coming to me as you've been talking about it. Um, and also this idea of things not dying. And I know that your uh, blog this, this month, you talk about uh, one of the thresholds that we will all cross regardless of where we are. Uh, all over the world, all over the globe. This is a threshold we all cross. And um, how we are not good at letting things die. And I'm thinking about uh, um, Joe McLeod is his name, and his research is about um, ends. And he talks about how we actually don't design for ends. And we design things to start, and we design things to grow and scale etc. But we really don't think about ends. And his deep dive is going into ends. And how do you design the end from the beginning? And I think that there's something uh, when you say that the traditional systems, whether it's education, whether it's economic, whatever, are things that um, perhaps need to die 
Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about those things. We may not sit in the same place on that uh, in the long term, but that's not what we're talking about this time around. Um, but this idea of how do you end the pieces that need to be end, ended without blowing the whole thing up and what does it look like? That's its own Narnia wardrobe, mm -hmm. right? The Narnia wardrobe of getting right. from the Kansas of where we've been to the Oz we'd love to go to. There is a middle part of that process that it's just another example to me of one of these middle places, that cyclone, that, that space of transition that will upend everything if we are successful at actually making change. But how do we then um, live through that? How do we endure that? And how do we resource people to endure that very necessary transition that has to take place? I'm not saying, and therefore, we shouldn't go for it. But it's how do we prepare ourselves to enter uncharted territory? How do we resource ourselves to get into it and through it with as few casualties as we can for people who are innocent bystanders to it? Mm -hmm. I don't mind there being casualties among people who have been you know, taking advantage and so on and so forth. But can we at least be thinking about how we can have the ends without also having a lot of people have to suffer as a result of it? So that's on my mind. We have such a dysfunctional relationship with death, right? And so, you know, folks out there listening, it's like, I'm willing to bet that, that when you hear, you know, things have to die, if you really examine it, it it's likely, you know, you, you heard me say that things are bad and therefore they have to go. That's not the case. Like a human being dies, not because they're bad, but because it's the natural cycle of things, right? An animal dies, a plant dies, not because they're bad, not because they weren't valuable, but because it's the natural cycle of things, you know? We, we don't have a discipline around dying. We don't have a, a, um, any sort of frame of reference around understanding that, that organic things, non-machine things, and our organizations are non-machine things, or at least they should be, you know, are... Social structures are non-machine things. They, they, they have a um, shelf life, and beyond their shelf life, they, they turn toxic, you know, like a piece of food that is uh, well past its expiration date. It gets moldy, makes you sick if you keep eating it. But it, it's part of this sort of collective and individual fear of change, right? It's the unknown. We don't know what's there. So in theory, death, whether it's actual death or the death of a way we've done things— is terrifying. It's uncomfortable for us to think about what lies beyond because we don't know. There's risk involved. There's potential for failure. We don't, we don't know what it looks like. So we prefer almost societally to stay with a status quo. It's like better the evil you know rather than kind of moving on and, and daring to rethink things. And I think if we could get beyond that fear, get more comfortable with change, which is one of the things Jones' work really teaches us is, you know, how to, how to view change and, and these sort of liminal spaces as opportunities, as invitations, rather than something to be deeply afraid of or unsettled by. If we looked at them as challenges for exploration and experimentation, maybe we could be less afraid and more um, excited by the door that's ajar rather than afraid of it. That whole notion of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable makes me nuts. 
like it just makes me nuts. I, how many times I sit in conversations with people is like, we just have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I know that's not what you're saying. Yeah. No, no, I know you're not. We've talked about it before. But it's more how do we resource? How do we help people to gather the resources they need to mitigate the things that are making them uncomfortable about that uncertainty. It's so that we're not uncomfortable anymore. It's not getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's, it's recognizing we will be, we, we will either be uncomfortable and then how, what do we need? What are the, what are the emotional resources we need to function when we're uncomfortable? What are the social resources we need to function when we're uncomfortable? And, and so it's less about how you should be. And I think that we do this to people all the time. It's like, if you were just the ideal you, you'd be able to navigate change better. Right. So if you just got less this or more that, and I'm more interested in in recognizing that, no, this is going to be really fucking hard. This is not, (laughs) this is not going to be comfortable for anybody, but then how do you do things when you're uncomfortable, right? And how do you do things when they're uncertain and unknown and you don't know? And then that calls into question your identity and who am I when I don't know? And all of the things that happen to people that we, in the cultures that we operate in, it's more, no, if you have the right stuff, you know the answers to those questions. And if you don't have the answers to those questions, then you don't have the right stuff. It's part of the polarizing thing, right? Everything is black and white and yes and no, and you're resourced or you're not. You're resilient or you're not. You're afraid of change or you're not. It's all so much more nuanced than that. And if we stopped thinking about things as being such kind of crystal clear dichotomies of your one or the other and accepted sort of the ambiguity in between, between that we can be well-resourced in some ways and poorly resourced over here, if we got comfortable with that notion, it, it would be a lot less scary if everything wasn't either a success or a failure. I'm going to go a different angle on this and, 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 and maybe be slightly contrarian uh, on, on the resource issue. There's some trips that it's impossible to pack for. You know, it's impossible to have the, the, the right things, the right tools, the right resources, the right anything. You know, my, my, my orientation has always been around the, those kind of more, you know, I don't know, earthquake events, uh, uh, transformative change uh, sort of stuff. And for those, um, for the most part, again, I, I don't know what to pack. It's like you gave me a, a, a plane ticket that's got nothing on it other than, you know, the time that the trip happens, maybe. And I could be going to Antarctica. I could be going to um, the equator. I could be going uh, to an island. I could be going to a city. I don't know. You know, it is so radically ambiguous that I, it's not possible for me to pack the right clothes. So then what do I pack? Well, let me go there with you because that notion of resources being packable things, Mm -hmm. I think is something that I would push back against a little bit. So yeah, great when we have the packable resources, Mm -hmm. right? And, And it's lovely to have packable resources. I think Uh, And so I'm not against packable resources. I definitely think we should be equipping ourselves and other people to have all the packable resources possible. Uh, But always with the recognition that sometimes the suitcase gets lost. So even if you have all of the packable resources, now you can find yourself without them. And so it's that second level of resourcing that I'm very interested in. That notion of 
how when you find yourself lost in the wilderness, do you have the kind of skills that allows you to adapt to that circumstance? How do you have enough background uh, in wilderness thinking (laughs) that you are now able to look around you and see what resources you can make, what resources you can create? How do you take the resources that you find yourselves with with that, that are not the kind of resources that you could pack, but recognize in this circumstance right now, I need X, so I could use this, possibly this. And that's its own kind of confidence. Like the confidence to say, not, oh, if I get all the things I need and all the resources I need, I'll be fine. But more, here are the resources I would like to have. And now, how do I also equip myself to be under-resourced and also able to be capable? Because there's a tremendous amount of capacity that comes just from the the notion that I could adapt if I needed to. I may not want to, but I could. And I think that, um, I, I think about this in terms of um, a quick story. When I think about this, because I've been a person who's had, let's say, like monetary resources and not had monetary resources, and I've been everything in between, I suppose. But this notion that Yes, I'm a college professor. Yes, I'm a writer. I do a lot of things. I love the things that I do. I'm, I'm really pleased with the life I've been able to build. But if it came down to it, I would clean houses again. And if it came down to it, I would absolutely tend bar again. I would wait tables. I would do what I needed to do. And there's a tremendous confidence in that. Am I saying that I want to go do those things? I would prefer not to. I, I've worked really hard to do other things. Mm-hmm. But there's something fundamental about the knowledge that I have that if I lost my bag, (laughs) I'd be able to get the resources that I need. And that's, I think, what I'm talking about when I'm saying resourcing. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So, so, uh, you know, that's what I was kind of leaning into is, was, um, you know, and folks here resource sometimes it is, it is things or it's packable. And uh, I think what you're speaking to is is resource generating, right? It's it's can, can I be resource generating versus resource uh, consuming? Love that. Yeah, um, and that that very much aligns with my experience that um, in these kind of large scale transitions, there's there's nothing you know there's there's, there's nothing I can give you that's going to help. Um, what there is to do developmentally is is kind of help you find the internal source of generation that when the plane lands, whatever the climate is, you can generate the right clothing. Internal and social with one another. I was just going to say, John, you talk a lot about like making your own tools. And uh, sometimes that the toolbox isn't perfect as it comes and you have to create your own as you go in the situation. And part of that, the ability to do that is knowing what works for you and knowing what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are so that when you find yourself out in the wilderness is wilderness, whatever it might be, literal or metaphoric, you know what you're good at right away. You know what weaknesses you need to resource against. It's like, okay, well, once it gets dark, I have these limitations. When it's this, I'm really good at directions. I'm really poor at directions. I have a very strong ability to find food for myself or not. You know, what do I need to tackle and in what order? And prioritizing and sort of making those toolkits for ourselves really come with knowing ourselves. The good, the bad, and the ugly. 
And I, I think that's the, the uh, for me, the primary challenge around, you know, major threshold events, right? Major change. When you kind of scratch the surface of it, people's experience, it's not what will I do? It's not how will I survive? It's not, I mean, those things are critical, important, you know, real. But the f- underlying fundamental issue is who will I be when someone close to you dies, when a marriage ends, when a marriage begins, when a job ends, when et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In the background is, well, who am I now? Who would I be if that happened, right? But we don't have access point to um, entertaining that question. Instead, we focus on the, what am I going to do? And how am I going to feel? And what should, all those things sort of get in the way of the real underlying thing, which is who do I be on the other side of this? I have no clue. And that's existentially terrifying. I think that's a lot of why so many people focus on professional identities too. Mm-hmm. It's easier to identify yourself than say, I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a that, yeah. rather than really get to the core of who you are and what your values are, what you stand for. And that's really important because you're really setting yourself up for a problem when you do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because your, your identities will change over time. Like they just will, right? So if we could, I, at least I am, am, am of the belief as, a, as an educator because I come to this really as someone who cares about how do we equip people for learning, right? For learning this in and of themselves. I'm so, I'm so curious about how do we start this conversation much earlier, I don't think we really, when we talk yep. to young people about any kind of identity work, it tends to be around vocation. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they're very, very focused on how am I going to make a living? And, and again, going back to resources, critical question, right? Because we can't throw that, you know, for people who perhaps have a huge safety net or have people who are going to pay their bills, then perhaps they don't have to get as serious about that. But how do we hold all the complexity of saying, okay, how do you make a living and pursue like, who you want to be and how you want to be and put all of those together? And that gets really, really complicated. The who do you want to be when I grow up being more than just what job do I want to have? You know, what, sure. are, what are my values? How do I want to live? What's the kind of lifestyle I want to create for myself that allows me to be my best self, to live in the world, to show up the way I want to? And I don't think we talk to kids enough about that. I totally agree, Joan. Well, and how do we build for meaning instead of hitting 44 and saying, what have I done? And it's not meaningful, right? So it's like part of this is if you start having these conversations younger, you can, I believe anyway, I think that you can prevent the midlife crisis. I, I don't think that we have to assume that the midlife crisis is a thing. If we can build a life from the beginning to be meaningful, but then that raises the question earlier. So what is meaningful? not what's going to make me money or do whatever it is. And also get away from this idea that you're going to have one vocation, that you're on one road in life and every journey, you know, needs to kind of one thing leading on to the next. You know, so many people's roads are not straight. And this sort of expectation we create in children that you need to start here and climb a certain ladder. And then oftentimes they get to the top of that ladder and are completely unfulfilled and have that midlife crisis and feel like, any sort of side movement is a step down when in fact maybe it's a step towards where they really belong now or really want to be. 
Yeah, I, listen, again, it, it, it gets back to death for me, right? People don't, uh, we don't teach people how to die. Or how to live. Well, well so, so as it goes, they're, they're, they're connected, right? If I don't know how to die, I don't mean the ultimate physical death, although that's part of it. If I don't know how to die to my identity, I don't know how to form a new identity. So I'm stuck with the narrative that got imprinted when I was five. That's horrible, right? Uh, so learning how to let go of my sense of who I am, you know, not in some throwaway sense, but 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 to loosen its grip, the kind of certainty of, of who I am, what I am, what I have to be, what I have to do, career, professional, relationship, all that, right? Like just just the the, the discipline around how do I die? Man, my daughter, I my daughter earlier, I'll talk about her again, you know, she's now an adult, right? Like, you know, past that age of 20, and you've got, you know, children who are that age. I had to go through a practice, and I'm still in it if I look carefully, of dying to that relationship sometime when she was in around early college. Because if I didn't let that relationship die, engaging with her as a 22-year-old, the way I engage with her as a 12-year-old or even a 15-year-old is toxic. Yep. Now, we're still parent and child, but, but we're finding, birthing, what the relationship is now. Well, that's a threshold, right? That, exactly. Right? It's a threshold that's to it. a new relationship, yeah. a new identity together. Yeah. yeah, but it's not possible if I don't let that old relationship die. Celebrate it just as you would a human life that ends, right? Well, like it was an amazing, like, you know, 18 years when I started thinking about this with her. An amazing <laughs> 18 years, like just a glorious life together as parent-child and, and you can celebrate that and, and, and give it a wake and give it all these things. And then, okay, what's, what's now born, yeah. right, between she and I? And, 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 and like a new life, it stumbles and it crawls and it falls down and it screams and it learns how to talk and you know, all that, right? And, and a couple of years in now, we have like the beginnings, just the beginning, a, a, a toddler relationship, a, a toddler stage of our relationship as adult parent and child, right? But again, that, that, the only way to do that is if you let the old relationship die. The only way to discover a new career is to let the old professional identity die. The only way to discover, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And we don't know how to die. We just cling to these things as if, you know, done once, I have to hold on to them forever and tack them to my LinkedIn page and my resume, and, and I can't ever do anything else. In my work, I call this putting everything on the altar, mm, right? So right. this is... Uh, putting things on the altar is part of this transitional work as I see it. And it's not just putting things on to die, by the way, <laughs> at least not in my view. It's when we are hitting these times, these uncertain transitions, and we're moving forward in a transitional time. I, 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 you know my husband. You both know my husband. And um, people are really surprised when I tell them that when I think about transitions, I put my marriage on the altar. Right. And so we've been married. It'll be 25 years. Uh, by the time this you're listening to this, it'll be 25 years because it's 25 years, December 2021. And this notion that when, at times of big transition, whether starting a new project, starting a new that reminding myself that I have the option to leave this relationship. Right. I can leave. He can leave. We can leave. So far, 25 years in, we haven't chosen to leave. But in doing so, in putting the relationship on the altar, we now get to also renegotiate that commitment, right? So it's saying, okay, we're not putting it on the altar for it to die. We're putting it on the altar to recommit to it because, mm -hmm. hey, we could make a different decision, but we're deciding to stay. But 
we also can now say for this next leg of the journey is the way that we're living together right now working for us. Oh, you have a big project right now. You're going to have to leave. You're going to have to do things. You're going to have to use half the house to film. You're going to have to, okay, yeah, all right, let's do that. Let's do that. And so at each point of inflection, this idea of putting it on the altar, deciding what stays, what goes, what works, what not, Mm -hmm. renegotiating. And I think that's why I get so excited about thresholds because I think every threshold becomes an opportunity if we yep. can kind of get dispassionate about whatever brought us there. And sometimes it is hard to get dispassionate about it because something really hard brought us to the transition. But if we can do the work that we need to do, gather the resources we need to be able to move from that fear and that threat response and move into a different kind of consideration, I think then it can be very generative. That wardrobe can be really generative. Yeah, it's interesting. It's actually... It first came up for me when AM was talking, but then when you were talking about putting things on the altar, I had a moment in my career about a decade in when I just wasn't challenged anymore. You know, I'd worked at MoCA, I'd worked at the Getty, I was working at MoMA at the time. And I mean, these are all dream jobs, right? They were each a dream job. And I sort of turned around and I had an offer from another institution that was equally venerable and I wasn't excited about it in the least. And I thought... God, I'm too damn young to be uninspired going into a new job. And I think it just didn't feel like a new challenge. And so what I, I didn't use this language at the time, but put on the altar was this idea that I was a museum person because that was the notion I had sort of accepted. I'd spent a decade working in museums and I was a museum person. I said, what if I put that idea aside and looked at what all the other opportunities were available to me. And I came out with three job offers from three totally disparate institutions, non-museums. And I took the one that scared me the most because I wasn't sure I could do it because it was the greatest opportunity for growth. It was the most terrifying threshold. And so the only one I felt kind of excited to run into. And so I just, I love that idea of putting on the altar yep. these ideas of, of who we are and being, not being afraid to cast aside this notion that I'm a museum person. Because guess what? The next 10 years were even better than those 10 years as a museum person. Yep. And I took with me all of that knowledge, all of that expertise. And I'm actually in some ways more of a museum person now than I was then. Because then I'd worked for three museums. Now I've, you know, advised 20 plus, 30 museums around the world. I'm more of a museum person now than ever. But I'm also an auction expert and an art market expert and an art fair. You know, I just kind of grew all these areas of expertise because I was willing to let go of this idea that I had of myself that I don't even know where it came from. It just was, that was my experience. So this is who I am. And instead growing beyond that. And now I don't want to identify myself as any of those things. <laughs> now I just want to know, be known as Rebecca Taylor, who is an expert in so many different things and not be tied to any one of those identities. Just quickly turning it, because I think it goes back to what you were saying about your daughter too, right? That very same kind of letting it go yeah. is going to lead to this other decade yeah. <laughs> of this new relationship with adult child, which is so my children are older yeah. than your daughter. So uh, that it, it, if we don't let it die, we not only make it toxic on the, on the back end, we miss what Rebecca's talking about, right? Of all of these opportunities that we're not even going to look at if we're only looking through, I'm a museum person. Yeah. No, listen, I won't say most. Many people I find are um, 
living surrounded by zombies, right? Their professional life is a zombie. It's something that should have died a while ago, and they've kept it alive artificially. They're living with uh, relationships that are zombies. The, the, the nature, I'm not saying they should have left that person, left that, like, I'm not leaving my daughter. We're, you know, for life. But the nature of the relationship, like, died a long time ago, and they've kept that version of the relationship alive, and it's a zombie, right? On the, on the, on the career transition thing, you know, I, I have such a long history of uh, being called an idiot by the people around me at a given faith, like, in a, in a kind of concerned way. I, when I hung up my professional practice six years ago, I was like, what the... What are you talking about? We got like, you know, signed a couple of, uh, I was in the midstream with a couple of very large clients, uh, had recently just signed a new one. And I was like, no, nah, I'm kind of done with this. What are you doing now? I'm not sure. I'm going back to New Haven. I think something education. I don't know. Well, what do you mean? What, how do you do that? I, I, and that's, you know, it's like the fourth time in my life I've, I've kind of hung it up. And, and, but that's what you have to do when, it, when, when the thing no longer has a pulse. You have to give it a healthy disintermediation, you know? And, and some things stay with you and some don't. But um, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not fond of death. I'm fond of birth. I'm just clear that the price of birth is death, you know. And I think that's, again, what we have to start uh, educating our kids on and getting, getting them comfortable with. You know, we all grew up and generations before us grew up with, with massive threshold events happening a couple of times in your lifetime. Right, like global, you know, global threshold events, maybe once in your life, maybe twice, maybe if you lived in really, you know, significant times, you had three massive, you know, threshold events uh, in your lifetime. Uh, these kids have threshold events at, at global and national scales every three months. And if we don't uh, uh, help them get better and better at uh, these, you know, all the things we've been talking about here about putting things on an altar and, and letting things die and, and you know, uh, engaging and fundamentally redefining themselves. My goodness, the, 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 the inability to move forward for them, the kind of trauma of living in a world that's high threshold without the skills uh, and the capabilities, um, it's, it's, it's tough to imagine. What's the big threshold you personally are on and uh, how are you engaging with it? For me, as of right now, sitting here having this conversation, I delivered the manuscript of the book, Stop, Ask, Explore, that is about these topics, really. Um, really, ultimately, the last change I sent was about two and a half hours ago. So this is a literal threshold in this moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the culmination. And, and I won't say culmination. That's the wrong word. It is the current state of a 10-year inquiry that is more about inviting people to a conversation than the results that I'm now sharing that has some, you know, particular um, outcome. It's, it's more that uh, these questions of thresholds are really, really important to me. And I think you couldn't have said it better, this, this notion of if we don't think about how to equip people to be dealing with both large disruptions and small interruptions that are coming frequently and are complex as they come, uh, that we're really missing something. We're missing an important resource that we need to be giving to people. So for me, that's the threshold I'm on is going from the inquiry to beginning to talk about it out in the world mm -hmm. and really having a deep desire to do it in a way that is not embracing old ways. <laughs> <laughs> like, I really don't want to now have to become um, 
a talking head keynoter in order to be able to share these ideas in the world, and I have not figured out how to do it. I have no idea how to do it, but that's the threshold I'm standing at. Uh, well, I'm at a threshold where I've spent my whole career in the art world, and now other worlds seem to be opening up for me, and I need to sort of decide or explore. Really, I'm not sure it's a single decision, in fact, to be made, but what can that look like? You know, what quantity of time do I want to spend in each? Can they coexist together? Can they merge into something new and unimagined before? Um, is it a is it a pivot or is it not a pivot? You know, is it a, a putting being in the art world on the altar and doubling back down on it with new parameters? Or is it um, figuring out how this is sort of informing whatever comes next? And I don't really know the answer to that. It's sort of a, a period where I kind of have um, one foot in multiple worlds and I'm just exploring what that may look like for me. So it's a definitely a period of uncertainty. Mm. But somehow less destabilizing than I would have expected it to be. How about you, A.M.? Yeah, I got a bunch of thresholds I'm in the middle of, but um, is we, we are collectively here at a threshold where um, we potentially are going to do something pretty, um, I don't know, risk of sounding however it sounds, something fairly groundbreaking, and that's going to require being very, 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 very public personally. For a short period of time at least before I can hand it off and hand it off I will but for a period of time there is going to be a need to be uh, not the public speaking and that kind of thing I've done that and that's like you know like bite size you can get away with that but the the sort of get back to, back to the question you know that I that I ask of others and, and you know that I'm in for myself like who, who who am I as a fully public person like in essence as a politician like that level of public is likely what I'm gonna have to get into over the next you know 12 to 14 months um, to realize the threshold that this institution is at and, and, and the impact it can have. And I have no idea how to be that person. Like, I like to hang out, as you know, I like to hang out at dive bars and listen to loud music. Um, you know, not drinking and carousing, but just, you know. And uh, that doesn't fit with the kind of public person I'm likely going to have to be the next year or so. So that, that's the kind of threshold I'm at right now, is I'm trying to figure out um, who do I be uh, to get this place across the threshold that it's on. Thank you for spending some time with us in this conversation. If you have any comments on what you've heard, we'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is on Clubhouse. We run a live social audio conversation on Thursdays at noon Eastern time. Visit us at ajar.substack.com for a link to that Clubhouse room, as well as all of the Ajar articles and information on upcoming events. The Ajar podcast is produced by Martin Ball with music by Matthew Politowski.